from 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky and this is Fintech Insider episode 389. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices and in today's show we're going to be doing things a little differently. As the year is coming to an end, we're going to be peering into our crystal balls and making some predictions about what we expect to hear and see more of in 2020. But before we get started, do you love fintech? Well, we know you do. Uh, Great news, we've relaunched the 11FS newsletter. Every Friday, we'll receive a summary of the biggest stories of the week in our 11FS style, along with interesting blogs and so much more straight to your inbox. If you're not a subscriber, sign up today at 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. Okay, let's get on with today's show. So here with me today is my co-host, Adam Davis. How are you doing, Adam? I'm very well, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to Christmas. I'm looking forward to Christmas. You've got a long break? No, no, only three days, but that's that's enough at this point. <laughs> three days? That's not long at all. No, I know, but I just, I'm looking, I'm, I'm more saying I'm looking forward to like Christmas trees and mince pies and it being socially acceptable to eat chocolate for breakfast again. It's always socially acceptable to eat chocolate <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that on board. Um, as always, we're not alone. Joining us for our 2020 prediction show, we have Mel Palmer, Chief Marketing Officer at Nucoro. How are you today, Mel? I'm good. How are you? Uh, it's been ages, weeks. I know, months. a strong six days before I'm <laughs> back in the studio. Thank you for having me back. Well, welcome back. Um, also, we have Ed Maslavekas. Did I get that right? Yes, very good. Perfect. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, Apologise for murdering that. Uh, see you, Bud. How are you doing? Very good. Slightly kind of, you know... Got the Christmas flu, as it will. Okay. Christmas party flu. Yes. Oh, you got the flu from the party? Yes. Or from partying too much? I think so. The first and the second. <laughs> Both. Um, and last, but by no means least, we have Simon Vance Kalina, co-founder of Fronted. How are you today, Simon? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. should point out that Simon's wearing an excellent Christmas jumper and is in fact sitting next to a tinsel-covered Christmas tree, so you can yeah, more be Christmas. more festive. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Let's get started. So on today's special, we're going to take you through our favourite 2020 fintech predictions. We're going to kick things off with those of us who are here in the room. And the first up is my very own prediction, which is we're going to start seeing some real innovation in areas outside of accounts and payments. So I'm talking credit cards, mortgages, pensions, etc., but especially insurance. Um, those of you who listen to our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, will know that insurance is a subject close to my heart. Um, but basically, I think uh, we've seen an awful lot of work done in current accounts and in new payment systems and new methods of payments thus far. Um, but what we really need to start seeing now uh, is sort of development in other areas of fintech or finance, sorry, so credit cards, mortgages, pensions, insurance. And I think we're at the right time for that now. I think the companies that are working in innovation in these areas are getting investment. I think the big guys are kind of waking up to the fact that they also need to start playing in those spaces. So I'm excited to see what happens next year. Anybody else thoughts on that? Who disagrees with me? Not me. That's not me. <laughs> Done wow, well. everybody's on the side. That never happens. Innovation is sometimes a bit of a dirty word when it comes to regulation. Like, innovative products is sometimes code word for new ways of fleecing consumers. So when you mean innovation, do you mean pro-consumer innovation or do you mean... What type of insurance innovation are you excited about? Oh, I see. Yeah, pro-consumer. Well, pro-customer, actually, not necessarily consumer. I think people tend to forget that a lot of innovation happens either with B2B um, or even in kind of the the broader stacks so of being suppliers to maybe some of the people who do the front ends. Mm. So There's a lot of companies now that are doing things like you insure as you go, so you insure your mm-hmm. car only when you're driving it, or you can insure yeah. your drone only when you're flying it. There's, there's a lot of that around, and that certainly fits with, I think we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this through this podcast, um, but... Uh, 
changing lifestyles and attitudes and work patterns. Like most of finance and a lot of fintech is is proving that you can adapt the way people live their lives differently now. And insurance is um, an area that's been a bit slow to keep up with, but I think definitely will um, a will will do so because it's an you know interesting area of development. And even like VCs have seen kind of the sort of returns that they can start to see have seen previously in fintech out of insurance as well. But also beyond that, I think people actually are, are starting to get more wise to the fact they need insurance. I think historically people have been a bit well, I don't need insurance. I don't want it. I don't understand it. The insurers, the bad guys. Um, but I think on the customer side of things, we'll start to see a lot more people kind of waking up the idea that they should have it in some shape or form. We've mm. done uh, we've done customer research recently on insurance products and insurance propositions. Um, we've done quite a bit. Interesting, actually, is so if you look at the the jobs to be done, and if you look at the real customer needs, very very like retail banking. So some of the barriers to entry, some of the things that uh, customers want to see, some of the access, some of the transparency on the products is very, very similar to the retail banking market, which is quite interesting because then actually you can apply some of the, I suppose, the methods, the methodologies, um, some of the sort of customer engagement tools are quite easier, well, not easy, but easier to adapt from a retail setting, I guess, to insurance, which hopefully means that if the customer's on side and the needs are there, then innovation in theory should follow. Yeah. Sorry. No, sorry, I was going to say, because they fit so nicely to Together as well in terms of the customer experience and what they're trying to get out of. You know, insurance is all about that kind of long-term view as much as it is with kind of future planning, whether that be investing or saving. So to kind of bring that together and not necessarily just see the product innovation, but that kind of experience innovation of bringing those areas together, I think will be really interesting for consumers next year. I think as well, also, you know, I mentioned pensions there as well. And I think pensions, insurance, sort of holistic wealth management, they all sit very closely together. And if you start sort of taking one of those threads out, the whole lot sort of unravels and you hopefully then, you know, um, inspire people to rebuild the, the whole stack. Um, but Simon, you you had your own thoughts on insurance, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, so I've been looking at, um, at deposit replacement um, because my new company, Fronted, is going to, to lend people money for their deposits. And the, the the other competitors in this space, they they're sort of replacing deposits instead of with a with a lump sum of cash that lives in an escrow account. They're replacing the concept of deposit um, with an insurance product. And I have I have, a, I have a lot of concerns that this is not really that great for consumers. They they pay the the premium up front, which can be five hundred pounds, and they they're expected to pay the premium every year. Although sometimes the second year is sort of included. But at the end of the the tenancy, they don't have a deposit to take with them to the next place. So. I, I worry that um, perhaps these insurance products that are being sold to consumers to replace what was traditionally money held in escrow um, aren't necessarily really good for consumers. And I think, like, if you think about these insurance products, they're an insurance product. With the premium is paid by the customer, but it doesn't protect the customer. It protects the landlord. And it, it, it sort of reminds me a lot of payment protection insurance. And so I am worried perhaps that, you know, we might be, we might be um, mis-selling these, these sort of products. Yeah, we, I mean, I've, I've certainly, um, we, we've spoken to people who offer similar services like that on InsureTech Insider, and it is a question I haven't quite got to the bottom to either, um, is that, like, as you say, with a deposit, I guess maybe 75% of the time you just get the full deposit back, and it, as you say, and then you just use it again. I think most people, particularly if you're renting, just take it to the next place. You if you get do it back. If you get it back. Um, but when we looked at it, there aren't that many people who don't get either all of it or most of it back. Um, but everybody knows deposits are a big problem. Like two out of the three political parties have fixing the deposit problem as part of their manifesto. And you mean the fact that getting that lump sum together in the first place is really difficult? For yeah, and it's a big, it's an impediment to social mobility. There's there's something like two million people trapped in houses or situations where they would leave if they had the deposit. It's a, it's a really really big problem. I know a, I know of a WhatsApp group of 
a group of people who want to split up with their partners, but they can't because they don't have the the deposit to move in and get their own place. So they they wait for like you know one person's partner goes away, and then they sort of like I'll I'll go stay with you while I split up with that person, and then we'll save up together and get a place. And it's like you shouldn't have to do these sort of like complicated puzzle games to move on with your life. It should be a lot simpler if you have the affordability. You should yeah. be able to move. And so something needs to change. Like it's clear that there's a, a consumer demand for like removing this impediment to social mobility. It's just not clear what the right solution is. Yeah, um, and I and I agree to the um, on the the point that the renting problem or issue needs some very careful and con, uh, considered considered consideration. I was going to say, but that's not accurate. Just more considered thought, I think, and more thoughts on the the the, the things that can benefit the people who are actually renting the property, as you say, because I think they've very much fallen by the wayside in this country um, of late. Yeah. So my twenty twenty prediction is that that's going to become a real focus for everybody, for the FCA, for consumers, for political parties, for the, the home, the renting space. Yeah, fixing okay. fixing the rental deposit problem so that people can actually move and, and take that job in London or that sort of thing. All we, right. We've done a little work around the rental recognition piece and actually helping people to start building out a bit of a credit file if they are renting. So it's kind of thinking about, you know, as, as things are becoming less affordable, well, you know, how can we benefit people that seem to be in these kind of constant traps of, okay, actually you don't have access to credit, therefore life is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Everything is more expensive for you. Um, and so, you know, hopefully this, yeah. will, this will start to sort of add on to that. Are you going to be a partnership? Is that what you're announcing here? <laughs> <laughs> not today. We're not going to announce that today. Funter would love to work with Bud. They have some really great technology. <laughs> and my co-founder came from Bud. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if that's an in-joke or not. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's uh, let's think positively about the rental space and uh, move on before we, we step into politics too deeply because that's not what this podcast is for today. Um, Adam, what you got for us? Uh, I had a few. I've whittled it down to one completely different uh, tangent. This is more around uh, a drive for open finance by the OBIE. So they've mentioned it in a report which they brought out, I think it was a couple of months ago now, in terms of the recommendations that they uh, they were looking at off the back of a lot of the standards mm-hmm. and, the, and the regs that they've already put out over the past 18 months or so. And for me, I think, and uh, I've spoken quite a lot about open banking uh, on this podcast and on others. Same. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> me we too. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean. think it's, 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 been, it's been a trend. It's been yeah. a thing. Um, but I think the, the the success of it, which has been questioned, um, which I think is actually a little bit unfair if you look at the amount and the volume of API calls that have gone and go through actually the open banking um, directory every month. It's now up to like 150 million or so. So there's a lot of calls going through, some tests, some not. But that aside... Um, what I really like about the open finance is the opportunities and the propositions that can be derived from it. So some of the other ones I had in there, which were um, potentially that a non-bank would acquire as many active customers as a bank. So you're looking at the AISPs and PISPs really, I think, actually hinge on open finance, which is, um, I suppose, the opening up of data way beyond, I suppose, the current confines of what open banking can provide, which is relatively limited transaction data Um and sort of balanced data. And this goes into other financial products, other financial services. Would love to see this focus from the OBIE this year. So I think the the working group you mentioned, the Open Finance Working Group has kicked off. The FCA is actually like working on, on how to implement it. And they talked about things like, things I've mentioned, pensions, mortgages, sort of the things that you need to get an actual proper holistic view of your finances yeah. and to actually be able to manage your money, your whole life, financial life rather than just your, your payments money, um, which is what most people do at the moment, just literally managing what they want to, what they want to pay from and putting it where. Yeah, Um, open finance doesn't even go far enough, though. In Australia, they've moved uh, to the consumer data right, which covers telecoms, energy, and eventually is going to cover, like, your shopping basket as well. Like, that's a a much... There's there's so much more innovation enabled 
um, by the consumer data right rather than the sort of open banking, which is just sort of finance. Yeah, the consumer data right is something that, that I'm very fond of and I've talked about a few times on the show, but I think the, the the problem there that has come in thus far is that not only do the, the big companies not want to talk to the small companies, so whenever you mention open banking, open finance, the incumbents go, oh, no, we don't want to let other people have access to our data. They might do something good with it. Um, in Australia, the energy companies won't accept the standards set by the finance companies who won't accept the standards set by the utility companies. And they've got this kind of standoff. Really? Incumbents being incumbent? <laughs> I, I mean, who would have thought it? Um, but you said that you hope it's going to happen, Adam. What's the likelihood of it happening in your mind, do you think? Uh, I think the barriers... Well, so I think it would come in phases. Um, I think there's a possibility that you could see some traction, some uh, low-hanging fruit opening up this year. But if you're talking about actually uh, beyond balances, if you're talking about to getting active positions from pension companies, investment companies, I mean, you're talking well into the future just because of the standard uh, and the levels of their legacy stacks, how difficult it would be to actually do this. As part of an open banking program last year, a mandatory open banking program to open up for one of the tier ones. And that was, you wouldn't even believe the complications that went into doing that, which in theory would outstrip um, or their, certainly their legacy systems outstrip what you would expect to see in a typical investment management company that needs to be able to provide this data on tap. I think the barriers, the technological barriers to doing this issue is, is enormous and it needs to be significantly enforced by the OBIE. So this isn't a five-minute thing. This is a this is get working on it this year, work out how it's actually feasible to do and then work out how to implement it next year. Being very optimistic. <laughs> so I, I, I agree with you. I do think that one thing I've I, I've started to see, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we see more of that very much feeds into this, is to uh, more of the innovation coming from the incumbents themselves who realise how much they're missing out. So particularly if you look at some of the building societies who haven't been mandated to participate yes. in this, this first round of open banking, they're going, yeah, but we want in on that. We want to be in, you know, the, the aggregators of the, the yolts of this world. We want to be connected. We want to be receiving money from those PIS transactions. So I'm hopeful that we'll see more coming that way as well, you know, them going willingly into it and saying to the big banks or, or, or you know, going up to the ABAE and saying, we want to play, tell us how. Um, I think we need to see more from the, from the demand side. So sort of the yolts or the demand side actually becoming the big banks or becoming actually the big tech players that are entering this space. You can't imagine a world in which Google and Apple enter or and Facebook now with new, the new payments um, system enter the market and don't want to have that sort of holistic approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and equally, we are seeing, and, and I think there's a, there was a, was it Tinkoff announced? Um, so, so, oh, yeah. Some sort of a thing. Lifestyle and, app. Yeah, lifestyle app, which is, in my mind, slightly kind of missing some of the, the oh, that makes sense to the consumer, but it, at least it's people moving in the right direction. I think Yes Bank as well announced a marketplace approach today. It just makes sense. And so I think as we start to see much more of the demand side, even if the incumbents in these third-party products aren't saying, okay, let's um, create this API strategy and, and go, um, you'll definitely see people, you know, VC-backed companies going, actually, there's an opportunity there. The demand side exists, so therefore we should supply the APIs. Um, so I think that's the, the one thing we're waiting for. Okay. Fingers crossed it all happens next year then. Um, back to you, Simon. What did you have? Uh, where are we up to? Open banking will become the default way of proving your identity, credit, worthiness, and address. Uh, replacing the sort of give me three months worth of bank statements as the default way of proving your identity in the UK. Um, I think uh, from my time at Monzo and, and now swapping over the over to the other side of being a consumer of open banking data, I think this one's a, a pretty solid prediction. Um, it's a lot 
uh, more cryptographically secure for a business to um, say, here's a link that will log into your bank account. And then from that, we can be sure we know who you say you are. We can be sure you have the affordability to afford our product. And we can find out other things about you as well, like... Um, like you know what your bank account details are and and um, your your name and so on and so forth. So I think um, it'll just come down to the most technologically sophisticated companies will start to switch. I think estate agents is going to be really really quick. Yeah, I think well we we started to see it um, being played with on um, when it comes to credit, haven't we? So particularly, mm. I think it's HSBC and M and S use. I'm going to say Experian, but people might want to correct me on that. Um, but Experian and Equifax both have these these gadgets, these tools, if you like, that slot into the open banking process and pull that data through and take that three-month or six-month of back statements out. Yeah, and Credit Kudos, a, mm, a great little fintech yeah. base in, here in London, is um, is sort of leading the way there. They're now registered as a credit reference agency as mm-hmm. well. So it's quite clear that like credit reference agencies and open banking play really nicely together. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll just be seeing who's successful building products and, and consumer products on top of those. I think the um, the open banking has been as talked about as like the silver bullet for for digital identity for for solving a lot of the digital identity problems that we have in the UK. I know that other countries. Please don't shout at me again, Norwegians. I know that in Norway they have digital ID down. I was on a panel a few weeks ago, and Nor- Norway the Norwegians were very very keen to emphasise that they had this sorted for a while. But here in the UK, we do have a problem with digital identity, and people keep talking about how open banking can solve it. One of the the things that I've heard that people are, are slightly wary of is that once you have that kind of open banking or that um, the open API being able to pull that much information, what happens if it's a fraudster on the other end? Um, so a lot of a lot of the, the pushback I've heard, and I, I don't know the answer, I'm not technical enough to know the answer, but what would your response to that be? I'm not worried about um, account information service providers going rogue um, because they are regulated and mm-hmm. I think the, 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 the strength of the regulation is very strong. Um, I'm worried that where there's a couple of things. One, the data is not all there. It's like 95% there, but businesses that want to consume this data, they don't get access to your home address or your date of birth or several other things that are pretty important when you want to make a, a, a KYC and know your customer or an anti-money laundering decision. So it's almost like open banking is almost good enough to do a lot of the, the things, but not quite there yet. And the other thing that everybody's concerned with is a sort of Cambridge analytical moment where we open banking becomes this source of um, surveillance capitalism, where where people are sort of forced or incentivized to give up their privacy in exchange for better pricing. Um, and that combined with machine learning models where you might see somebody being penalized and offered a, a more expensive um, home loan or a more expensive um, rental deposit, for example, because of their lifestyle choices, like because they go to a certain bar at two o'clock in the morning or because they donate, donate to a political party. So I think that's something that needs to be regulated and it needs to be well understood by consumers. But I'm not worried about AISPs going rogue. Okay. What a relief. I'm going to move us away from open banking and into a possibly um, more contentious area. That sounded really sarcastic. I, I do genuinely mean <laughs> what a relief. I don't. I, I am all for open banking and the benefits it provides and I 100% do not think AISPs or PISPs are going to go rogue. Um, we are going to move away from open banking now um, and your your second prediction here, Simon. We're going to try mm. and keep this short because I have a feeling that it could... We yeah, could have we're going to talk about the B word. word. We're yeah. going to talk about Brexit. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> this tends to be a bad, a bad comment. Whenever we uh, whenever we do the new show over the past few weeks, it's been like, no, or the election in general has been like, no, no, no. Well, okay, Simon, give, um, us, give us your prediction. Brexit's going to suck. 
Right. <laughs> Do you want me to say that again in a way that doesn't <laughs> doesn't I get bleeped? <laughs> was, was her, well, that's fine if that's your opinion. But there was you had originally suggested that there might be a particular repercussion of Brexit that would have a significant impact on the financial services industry. I think we're going to fall into a recession. Right. I think we're very very close to a recession now. Um, but I think once Brexit really kicks in around December, once I mean the current timeline looks like Brexit will be delivered by December, people will start to make decisions about, like, it, it, it's one of those perception of reality things, right? It's like, already I have friends who are selling their houses and who've gotten very late in the process and then the buyer has gone, oh, actually, you know what, I want a 50 grand reduction in the price because Brexit. Mm. And that's that feeds into everything. It's people delaying decisions to buy, you know, fridges for their, their small business or for or to hire more staff or to, once people think that there's a recession coming, a recession comes. And I think that's going to come. Okay. I mean, I, I would buy that. I, I'm not an economist, so I wouldn't be able to back that up with numbers. But from what I've seen, I think falling into recession towards the end of 2020 does seem a distinct possibility. Sadly, I think the um, the, the only the only thing you could say is that there's a potential bounce back on the economy. So actually, after Brexit happens and say the Tories get in. I don't know when this podcast is going out, but we'll see. Um, this might after be wise after the, the effect. After the elections. Then we so. can cut that sentence out. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, the, the spending by the government is going to be so uh, far because of all the election pledges that have been made that it will stimulate growth in the economy up to X amount. So you might not see a recession. Well, late 2020 might be a good shout, might be into 21, 22. So it's just almost pushing it out for a certain period of time. There's also the, the impact on business that, a decision being made will have because businesses generally and investors definitely hate uncertainty. Um, so there's potential for sort of a bit of a boost to come back once that decision is made. But I um, I am happy to go with the consensus here that recession seems like We've seen a sort of small version of this in the US, well, a big version in the US <laughs> trade war, but as in one that seems to fluctuate more often than Brexit does. And we've kind of seen that we're going to fall into recession from the US and then slight bounce back because people hold off spending and then they spend when it seems good and come mm-hmm. back. I'm I'm hopeful, but, you know, I could see it as very possible. All right. Mel, I'm, I'm hoping you've got something slightly more optimistic for us over there. On the 2020 predictions or Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move away from the B word now. If uh, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> yeah, slightly more optimistic. So my 2020 prediction is that as the challenger banks keep on coming and big tech start to get their foot in the door for financial services, we can expect more incumbent tech collaborations. I think this is the year that they will realise that they can't do it all themselves. And is there anything particular in kind of what you guys do at New Quarry that you that you you know, has made you think that? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we've been on, I guess, an interesting journey in the wealth space because we started as a retail proposition for B2C. So we have our own robo-advisor called Exo Investing. um, And we started to get a lot of interest kind of from the B2B world saying, hey, actually, we really want to do this, but we don't know how. Um, And I think it's really marrying up somebody who's got that massive distribution network in place and somebody who's really, really great at building technology. And those two together being so much more powerful than both trying to you know if we were like we're going to build a massive distribution network as big as the banks or as big as insurance firms that's going to take us a really long time and it's going to be really really expensive Um, and you've already got examples of incumbent firms trying to do these things themselves and it not going that well it ends up costing lots and lots of money it's a massive kind of drain on resources so you know I think there's a really positive opportunity coming for 2020 and beyond of bringing those kind of two elements together Um, and it also gives a lot um, for customers as well because instead 
instead of getting, you know, boxed products that aren't right for them, there's an opportunity to kind of build bespoke ones for different client groups that you have um, and give everybody a much better kind of wealth or investment or money experience, whatever you want to call it. So we, we've this sort of conversation or this sort of topic of conversation about collaboration and partnerships sort of been around for a while. What do you think is sort of different at this point? Why are we sort of at a tipping point now? I think because incumbents have tried to do th- things themselves and it's been going wrong. I think before you were kind of looking at it going, no, it's possible. You know, Monza built a roundup tool so we can do that too. And then finding out that that takes a really, really long time. And if you've got kind of the challenges coming, building lots of different features that are coming out every two weeks the banks just can't keep up. So you've got to kind of pivot your strategy or you might kind of struggle further down the line. And I think it's more that realisation point of how difficult it really is that is going to kind of push this conversation forward next year. It's ye- oh, sorry. I, I wasn't going to say anything. All right. I was going to say, I think it's, um, th- th- there's a few, th- there's years of neglect within incumbent banks with their data and an- analytics teams. Um, they're not silly. So for me, it's a data, there's a data overlay. If you look at um, the reason why some of the big techs at the moment are starting to get more into financial services, but not from an infrastructure perspective, but from an actual propositional perspective, um, they're realising they can't do it all themselves. So the commoditization of payments at the moment means that they have to partner with banks in order to get just the richness of data that they want. Um, I think it's it's almost like a poison challenge for some of the incumbents insofar as the margins on what they're for will be squeezed because they're partnering with big techs who are just willing just to throw money at the problem it means that some of the most, I suppose... Um, traditionally profitable revenue lines for banks are going to get more and more. This isn't, again, a 12-month 2020 thing. This is wider than that. But we'll get continually squeezed until the point where almost big tech's done with them and they'll sort of throw them away and move on to the next thing. But they'll drive out of them all the data which they need in order to do, you know, the big machine learning plays and the big deep data dives and, you know, the moves in cross geographies. And I think that's the overlay for me, which is um, why you've started to see is one of the reasons, but it's a key important reason, I think, is why you started to see some of the big techs get involved a little bit more than they have done. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the, the most common comment about Google's, the news about Google's checking account is that it won't be a checking account. It will be a way for Google to, like, absorb people's data with, like, a Google shiny front end on it. Like, people who've looked at it and, and have actually sort of looked at the proposition as it stands. I mean, it's still a very thin proposition. It's just a link to other transactions accounts, I think. Uh, well, we don't really know what it's going to look like. Yeah, there'll be a lot of rewards involved, supposedly, to bring you in. But it, again, to your point, that's exactly what that looks like. And again, when people talk about Apple and Goldman Sachs partnership with that credit card, again, there's a lot of discussion about Apple using it for the data. On Mel's prediction about that um, incumbent legacy banks are going to suddenly get good at partnering, the the thing that they're, they're good at, they're good at financial services. They're good at money. That's why they're big. That's why they've been around forever. What they're bad at is technology. And the technology companies are coming, and the smaller companies, the newer companies are the ones that are generally better at the technology. So I think your prediction sort of says that you think that um, incumbent legacy banks are finally going to get good at technology. Is that right? Kind of. But then I think it's kind of there's two sides to it. You know, if you've got a massive company integrating with a massive company, that's still really, really hard. I think we, when we started out, particularly on the B2B side, um, and we were looking at kind of what that integration is going to look like, and you start kind of scoping it out, and it's like, oh my God, you know, we can't possibly do this. We've got to find a better way. And that we kind of focus now more on being that bolt on. You know, this is, you know, new customers that you 
you can bring into a new experience that then kind of builds and grows as opposed to moving people over from one system or relying on APIs between the two. So um, I think it will depend on the approach that incumbents take. I think some of them might, you know, hopefully I we do. I think they're going to. Yeah. I, think, like, I think this is the year when banks finally do realise you can replace your core banking system. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think what I was just about to say is that it's realizing they need help. I think yeah. that's they're actually you know that one thing they say about people who have um, addiction or, or you know eating disorders that you can't help them until they realize they need help. Yeah. I feel like some of the big incumbents have been so insistent on that they can do everything themselves. And there's so many companies um, now that are out there building good core banking systems. There's Foundry, there's Yoboda, there's Mambu, there's like so many of these companies. And also when the banks do realize they need help, they go and look for somebody for help and then have a tendency to squash them instantly, if that makes sense. They bring somebody in to try and like help them build something and then go, yeah, good idea, but. X says we can't do that. Yeah, good idea, but no, but no, but no. And then they end up squishing the person who they've asked for help in the first place and end up back where they started. Well, because almost the, the process of being able to partner is the hardest bit rather than the product innovation or those kinds of ideas. It's how can you actually work together to then deliver something tangible rather than, yeah, getting squashed and then it all kind of dissipating and no one ends up with anything. Yeah, I was going to say, I've sat on the other side in an incumbent before and I think that one of the hardest things is getting the procurement team to line up to be able to do a deal of a sizable amount which does doesn't uh, set, I guess, risk or alarm bells ringing, um, but it's just enough that you can actually get something to live in sort of very controlled circumstances. That in itself is very difficult. One day I'm going to write a report on the evolution of procurement because I think every single person I've ever spoken to, either within this company or who you know we speak to as guests on the podcast, has problems with procurement departments. But, this... but everyone who works, well, not everyone actually, that's, uh, I'm overstating it, but some of the people who work in procurement departments in banks know that their processes aren't good enough, mm-hmm. but don't do necessarily necessarily anything about it which is or, or, or they sort or can't yeah maybe can't the will is there but the um i suppose the actual you know the action off the back of it just isn't is uh yeah it's it's hard today customers are demanding greater value from financial services they expect more agility innovation and security than ever before most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. I'm going to bring us over to Ed, <laughs> who is going to talk about his prediction. I won't talk about procurement and banks. You, you might. <laughs> no, I will not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this was 2020 predictions, and we've made it really dull. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I mean, it's, a, it's an important, it's an important topic. Um, yeah. So, so my prediction is a kind of a slightly strange one um, that we will see the evolution of widgetization in financial <laughs> oh. services. Oh. Wow. The first word what for 2020. <laughs> I think, I think we might need a new term, but please explain what I you think he's got it. a sticker written on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so essentially what, what, what it is is kind of, and I'm not going to use open banking, the words open banking too much, but open banking has started to allow people to think about APIs and how you can use APIs and how you can create app-to-app experiences um, without building everything on the front end twice. Um, so 
actually some some of these sort of really nice consumer journeys or, or um, additional sort of bolt-on services don't always have to be served through the sort of mother app, if you will, the kind of the the bank app or the app. So a, a good example of this is, um, has anyone ever shopped at Klarna or shopped, not at Klarna, but you, well, you can now shop at Klarna, which is part of this. Um, if you ever shopped at someone like somewhere like ASOS, um, then I would encourage you to go and download Klarna's app and log in with the same email that you've checked out with at ASOS, and you will see your basket there. Um, and this is kind of like back-end app or app-to-app or back-end integrations um, where you can sort of pick up part of an experience in one app and actually continue on, on another app. And so actually there's this kind of idea that, that sort of proliferated that Marketplace banking is coming, and you'll get these mega apps straight away. But actually, what I think we'll start to see in this year is the kind of beginnings of that, where some of the features and functionality that you might have imagined in a full end-to-end marketplace app will exist in just another app that is integrated in the back end to what to the service you originally exist in. So you imagine um, you do something on a bank app, um, then it says, okay, you want to complete that service, you download another application, and then you have all those services there. Now, of course, in the ideal world, we'll move to these big mega apps. But actually, um, I think what we're seeing more and more is that people are saying, actually, there's a stopgap between where you can get some of the experience here and then more in a different application. Um, so that is the widgetization of financial services. I'm pretty sure someone said that before, but... Um, if so not, you've heard it here first. Does it does it end up looking a bit like the sort of the the WeChat systems? Is that kind of like you just have the one app you open up and everything's linked on the back end, whether that's buying movie tickets, paying your council tax, or yeah, def- shopping at ASOS? Definitely, but we won't certainly see that kind of full in one app experience because, mm. like we've said. Um, big institutions, incumbents, are are not very good at partnering from a technology perspective and from an operational perspective. So actually doing the operational legwork to have it all exist in the application. Therefore, in the incumbent's mind, it has to sit under the same risk and all that kind of stuff. And equally from the tech perspective, it's actually having to build all that experience and all that stuff into their own app. So a stopgap between is is kind of just having a widget, a little bit of a feature, and then being able to continue that feature in the back end. But as a customer, you feel and you will sort of see your data exist um, across those apps so you actually get a better service. And you don't have to create an account. and You don't have to mm-hmm. type your address in again and your email and you know, all that sort of stuff. You just tap the button and it pops into the app and it's all there. It's magic. It's a fantastic experience. Is this, and I may have this completely wrong, but is this a sort of off the back of something like deep linking, like where you have yeah. everything in the back end all linked up? and Yeah. App to app wasn't included okay. in the original um, the regulatory technical standards that came with open banking, mm-hmm. but um, the open banking implementation entity sort of like forced the banks yeah. to do it and it's been fantastic it's really good for it's really nice we, it's really nice. It really nice yeah i've talked about it a lot when it comes to getting people to sign up to open banking and obviously the first thing that the big banks went with with open banking was aggregation and the on experience was catastrophic so i was taken from my you know whichever app i was in to the mobile website of mm-hmm. the bank i was trying to add so first of all trying to use a mobile website on a phone is just a nightmare second they were asking me for Lots of details, like you know, long pin, uh, long long passwords to enter. Or your internet login, not your mobile login. Yeah, your internet login, not your mobile login. Sorry, yeah, that's the best way to say it. Um, And then the third problem is that me and many other people hadn't got a clue what our internet login was anymore because we only ever used our fingerprint to get into our mobile banking app. So people gave up on on trying to connect those two apps. Um, And the banks, as you say, now have been forced into doing app to app. I think I think it was the consumer uh, element of OBIE that said, no, you've got to app to app. Yeah, user experience guidelines. 
Um, and now it's brilliant. But what I haven't seen the banks do is go back out there and tell people they've improved that experience because I think a lot of people who are put off the first time round will now be like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, did you want to talk more about systems of intelligence Ooh. or have you covered that? You've got a few um, minutes. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of going on, building on, we're seeing definitely a proliferation of, of APIs in, in financial services. It's not just open banking. It's private companies um, deploying APIs, which really means that there's a, a broader access to data in financial services or data that's relevant to customers' financial lives, whether it's something to do with your insurance or it's your address that's available somewhere and your transactional history. So when you bring all of that data together, there needs to be some sort of system intelligence that sits on top of multiple data sets and is able to actually help and assist the customer on top of that. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be a service provider. It can be a lot of... Um, well, what we're starting to see now, and um, there's some very small companies starting to do this, but really like what we've seen right now is like enrichment services on top of data, but those will start to become a little bit better. Can and, you give an example of one of those? What, is that, what would one of those be? Um, goodness. Um, as in a company or, or what type of a service? Uh, well, either, really. Oh, so, okay, if you were to say, okay, I'm going to ingest your transactional information, uh, your address... Um, and say, hey, by the way, you um, are overpaying on utility bill based on your location, based mm -hmm. off of what you're spending. So that's uh, a service that we've started to see people look at within things like Monzo. Yes. Okay. Uh, but okay. if we took that a little bit further or added that mm -hmm. to, to multiple different products and services or you're ingesting more data to get or, or different data sets to get more accurate, um, then I think that's what we'll start to see. We'll start to see um, companies emerging just to sort of – there's this amazing kind of um, – write-up by uh, a VC at Greylock um, who talks about systems of intelligence or the new modes of the future. And what you need to do that is have access to multiple different data sets. And that's what we're starting to see. So I definitely see there'll be companies that are able to service banks and financial institutions with these kind of um, sort of systems of intelligence rather than sort of systems of record or systems of engagement that sit over the top. Sounds like a golden opportunity for somebody like one of the the uh, market uh, compa comparison websites. I was going to say, I was going to say, compare the market, compare the market, go go compare whatever you want a money supermarket. Like, yeah, sounds like golden opportunity for them to start. But they're still space. the incumbents, right? So yeah. it's kind of like who's going to enter that space? <laughs> who's going to be the new one of them? Yes. <laughs> yeah, more data is good for consumers. Like the better consumers have, better access consumers have to their own data, the better companies can act as agents for them mm -hmm. to find them better prices on things. And that leaps back to the point about the Australian consumer data, right? And the whole yeah. point of that originally was, was to do that because if you've got telco data, utility data, and financial data, and we should point out the consumer data, right, is not just uh, banks and payments. It's all financial services, isn't it? Or most yeah. of them. Um, then you can build a holistic picture of somebody. And one day we'll get, we'll get like receipts from shopping centers. And you'll find out that you're actually paying way too much money for your toothpaste. And then Amazon says you can get it cheaper. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Subscribe to toothpaste and save. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we're going to take a quick fire round of predictions submitted by some of the 11FS team. So first up, we have David Breer, who says that challenger banks in the UK will stop being a future threat and become a present one. Customer numbers scale, as does their range of offering to make the likes of RBS, Barclays and HSBC finally admit they are losing customers and revenue due to the presence and performance of Monzo, Starling, Revolut, Tide, etc. Admitting that this is the last bastion of the incumbents who until now have been deniers, leaving the challenger banks no longer being challenger banks, just banks. So basically, 
challenger banks will finally achieve that scale, which means people stop using the word challenger in front of them and just lump them in with other banks. He's really gone out on a limb here, David, yeah. hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Monzo's growing at uh, last, when I left, it was a quarter million um, users a month, which is bonkers, you know? I th- it won't take very long until um, until Monzo and Starling are, are, you know, the default choice for, for half the consumers who sign up for bank accounts every year. So, um, yeah. Is everybody around here bank with Monzo or Starling? I do. I have a Monzo account. It's not my principal account. It's either. not my principal account yeah. either. That, I guess that's I the other side of it. But Yeah, well, that was just what yeah. I was about to say. Like, I wonder if that's the other side to this prediction is that I don't think um, anybody would be surprised if Monzo reaches, you know, five, six million customers. The second question there is always how many of them are using it as their principal account? And the third question is, does that matter? Yeah. I, I mean, like, that kind of growth, like, eventually... Monzo will get to a point where it's saturated in the UK. It's probably already saturated in shortage. Like when you look down a bar and every single person's got a hot coral card. Um, I can say it's also saturated in Amersham, which is not what you'd expect, but there we go. <laughs> it's basically, it does the, do the incumbent banks run out of yeah, buts? Yeah, mm. but actually, is it the, this account or yeah, but is it something else? What is the yeah, but now when you have 5 million customers? And why do you want to provide people with a current account anyway? Like why like the for challenger banks, the point of providing people with a current account is so that they can um, provide them other services and and you know like make money out of interchange and and because of their low cost base, they're actually those are profitable accounts. So for Monzo, um, now I think they're um, they're unit economic positive, so every customer makes them more money, and the cost to serve the customer is wildly lower than the incumbent banks. And at some point, the incumbents will be like, yeah, you know what, we've got like a decreasing number of customers who are increasingly unprofitable because the fixed costs of maintaining the IBM mainframes from 1985 are, say the same every year. So they'll have to look for something else. They'll have to like change their cost base or 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 move into a different business. be interesting when the challengers start having to face, I suppose, problems that the legacy banks have had to face for a while. So they become of the scale and size that um, you have to differentiate in products, you've got to diversify revenue, um, you've got to start changing your perception of what active customers actually means, um, <laughs> which I think is, is, is two wildly different things, um, and and actually start facing maybe some of the pressures from a regulatory perspective, a capital requirements perspective, etc. Um, and I think that comes when you grow cross geographies and cross product. Um, and it'll be interesting to see at what point um, some of the, I suppose, the, I guess, like the ideals that some of the challenger banks were, were based on get threatened slightly if because growth has just got to such a point where they have to start thinking like an incumbent. I think we've started to do that to a, a very slim extent with Monzo um, and their communication strategy, or its communication strategy, sorry, um, in that I think there was some... some pieces on the news recently um, about the way that Monzo was handling accounts that had been frozen due to suspected fraud. Um, and the way in which they handled it was exactly the way in which they would handle any other um, issue that, that that came up. And they were very open, they were very transparent, they were completely honest about the situation was and what they could and couldn't do about it. Um, and it didn't necessarily hit home with everybody. Um, those people who are its loyal customers and who've been its customers for you know a long time and were their early doors, completely on board with it, understood it. But because it was presented to a broad audience and perhaps a more mainstream audience. I think that audience perhaps wasn't ready for that approach, that direct, honest approach, because if the same thing had happened to one of the incumbent banks, they would have just said, yes, yes, very sorry, looking into it, you know, and just sort of put a PR person up. But because Monzo were, were their usual open, honest and transparent selves, 
I think that didn't necessarily work for all their customers. And maybe they're at a scale now where they're going to have to think about how does that communication strategy work across the huge dem- broader demographic we've got. I'm not saying that it, it won't work or it can't work or they won't bring those people along with it. I just think well, that's one almost twinge of, of that kind of what problem that scale, achieving that scale can have. Um, but let's just go with broadly, yes, big on challenger banks becoming just banks. Happy with that one. Okay, one from Mr. Simon Taylor. Wealth Robo becomes a much more key battleground for fintech in 2020. Uh, so we can already see this in the Schwab Ameritrade tie-up. Um, Robinhood and Acorns have changed the game. Uh, Simon reckons we'll see a swathe of activity globally and copycats, um, especially now Robinhood is coming to the UK um, and further and beyond. Um Mel, sounds like one for you, perhaps. Yeah, I have some thoughts. Okay, (laughs) yes, please, enlighten us. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the robo-advice growth that we've seen um, and the trends are all kind of moving in the right direction, but at the same time, wealth management is a really tricky subject um, and it's one that combines technology with understanding. You know, we talked about potentially there being a recession next year. Um, What happens when lots of people who have got involved in robo-advisors and the recession happens and they suddenly lose lots of money and they don't really understand it, what happens then? What does that do for the kind of the robo-advice trend? Um, In terms of, I guess, the copycats and it kind of proliferating globally, um, people want options, um, but again, wealth management is so personal to you. So a robo-advisor copycatted across every kind of region and, and every market isn't necessarily going to work because some of them might be for uh, high net worth individuals who have a very different um, approach to money. They've got lots of tax things to worry about, whereas if you've got kind of the mass affluent, that's not necessarily something that they're thinking about. So um, I definitely think robo-advice will grow. It will be a much larger part of the conversation. Um, building a B2C proposition is tough. Um, so I I think we'll see a lot of that come from the incumbents building it potentially with Nakoro as a wealth belt on. Um, <laughs> but that actually, you know, building a B2C and then kind of building that distribution when actually the mindset and the understanding for wealth in general, um, particularly in the UK, isn't quite there yet, doesn't necessarily mean that it will suddenly kind of boom. I, th- I think I agree with you on the fact that we've started to see the incumbents very much move in this space. And what's interesting is that I would say that the the people and the incumbents who've moved in the wealth management space have failed faster and moved more quickly than perhaps those have done in the retail banking um, space. So we've already seen a few uh, robo-advisors or so-called robo-advisors, but actually largely just um, fancy front ends from incumbents that have been shuttered. So they've come out, launched them 12 months, oh, this isn't working, and shuttered it down. I think UBS was one. There's a Investec couple of shuttered as well. Investor as well. Um, and what that says, I think, it very much feeds into Mel's point is that they clearly weren't delivering people with what people actually want and need. It was just kind of, we're going to get into that game too. So I think what we need to see in 2020 is exactly as you say, wealth management innovation, yes, but actually serving people's actual needs and not just kind of a, what, what is it called? Innovation theatre. Where you just launch a shiny new thing and shout about it for a bit and then it quietly goes away. Well, it should kind of, oh, sorry. It should kind of fit within, you know, it's a journey, right? At some point, you're trying to get out of debt. At some point, you're saving. Then you're starting to invest. Like, how does robo-advisors fit into that kind of journey? And, you know, you almost want to get, want to, get to a point where, I guess, in terms of the roundups, if you get to £5,000 set in your current account, that you are being potentially encouraged to invest because you've got that kind of safety net in place. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity to tie that e- 
ecosystem together now like we definitely have the technology to do it um, and I think that plays into the education point because instead of going hey move your money and put it on a robo advisor it's actually hey you've got this amount of money have you thought about doing something like investing this is an ETF this is how this works and we can kind of bring that education and technology journey together. Okay, I think I think again, quite a generally positive reaction to that one. Um, this next one is from Leader Glyptus. Uh, so this is the year when banks realised that the core cannot be what is left after all options have been exhausted. So in order to deliver truly digital services, you need a turtles all the way down digital core and a fully connected and realigned organisation to imagine, build, and deliver products powered by your new digital core. So Simon, do you, do you want you mentioned core yeah, systems earlier? Absolutely. Like banks, big banks have a, a risk falling into this situation where they're just expensive due diligence machines. Because all the good parts of payments and all the good parts of FX and all of the good parts of the marketplace have been taken by challenges. There has to be something else left for them. But if they have this like if they have this core banking system that just means that it takes them two years to react or change anything, that's what's going to happen. They're going to have nothing left. So I'm really excited by the fact that there are so many companies out there building core banking systems now that like genuinely, like just the number of companies building core banking systems means that there must be a market, there must be a demand there. Um, and like we were starting a lending business, so we went out and had a look at the market and like looked to see who was providing a core banking system for us. And like there's some fantastic options. I had great chats with Yaboda and great chats with Mambu and um, and talked to a bunch of other people as well. And like you can do it now, and you couldn't do it you couldn't do it in the same way six or twelve months ago. It's changed. There's things like modular finance and ClearBank out there. Mm-hmm. So operating accounts have APIs now. Like none of this stuff existed twelve months ago, and now it's just so much easier that. Um, the big banks have a real opportunity to to swap out their heart, their core, and um, and then start to play with the fintechs at the same uh, at the same level. I think also um, to go back to my own prediction that the insurers are starting to realise that as well. The insu- I mean, if you think banks' core systems are messy, you want to look at some of the some of what's sitting behind some of the UK's largest insurers, particularly because we had this huge M um, and A spree in the UK insurance industry over the last sort of five to ten years, and there's just been this huge kind of like. Um, sort of squashing together of so many different systems so many different books so it can be like if you're an insurer and you've bought up and bought up and bought up loads of other uh, smaller insurers or, or brokers or, or any kind of anybody else who's within the ecosystem you end up with 50 60 70 different cores you know trying to sort that out is a hell of a problem as well but i think that the insurers are moving slightly faster than the retail banks in coming to that realization i think they're already starting to look what do we do at the back end um, so my hope is that it's not just banks, it's that insurers think on it. And, and to a certain extent, I think wealth managers as well probably need to be having a thinking about, you know, what they're doing on the back end as well. Well, definitely. And, you know, particularly we speak about data earlier, if you've not got your data set up in a way that you can use it, you're really going to struggle when you've got the fintechs and the insurtechs coming after you who have got a really nice, clean kind of back end and they can do the analysis that you can't do, even though you've got reams and reams of amazing data. I think uh, just, you know, very quickly, what do we think about the idea that you test your core first by building a sort of a sub-proposition? So some of the big banks have built their new banking digital-only brands on a new tech stack to one side um, to sort of test out and see how it goes and then starting to move people across. I can't remember who did that recently. Somebody came out recently and said that that's what they were going to do and they'd started doing it. I mean, we Um, built Monzo as a prepaid card to check the proposition first and then we swapped out the technology for our own technology once we knew we had something that consumers wanted. It makes sense. Yeah. I think we've seen more of that in France, actually, but um, we'll definitely keep an eye on that one. 
Um, and I'm going to have to go and ask Lida what turtles all the way down means, unless anybody in the room can explain no it. No idea. It means there's no mainframes. <laughs> Does it really? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like one of those technical uh, No, it's what's, what the, the, the earth sits on the back of a turtle. And the question is, what does the turtle sit on? And apparently some woman once said, like, no, it's turtles all the way down. Um, right. And last, by no means least, we have a prediction from the USA from Will White. So <clears throat> Will predicts that the USA will see an explosion of niche challenger banks solving real customer pain points and rapidly becoming profitable. The cost of starting a bank and the options to make revenue are at a tipping point as the supplier stack here evolves. That will bring more and more non-banking, tech or otherwise players into fintech. This shift will raise questions of challenges offering universal banking, not niche services. And it will all become about profitability, not user numbers. Reintroducing universal banking. Is that what? No. um, not universal banking. It'll raise questions at the moment, but challenges tend to offer universal banking. And I think Will's saying we actually need more niche uh, provision of services. I think that's particularly true of the US market is what he's suggesting, and we're going to start seeing that happening. The US is sort of a lot like Europe as well. There's a lot of different populations that have a lot of oh, different yeah. requirements, a lot of different needs. And, like, we're, we're very cognizant when I was at Monzo of, like, not just providing bank accounts to people who live in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, because they're already using Chase Sapphire and, like... Chime. The, and Chime. And, and But there are a lot of people who live in, you know, Arizona and New Mexico and and who, who do need things to, like, you know, smooth out their wages or, or people who work in the gig economy and have... Very very different needs to people who hang around and listen to fintech podcasts. So um, it's not necessarily a, it's not necessarily a one size fits all for the US market for sure. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think there's also some um, interesting political challenges that will need to be overcome in the US. So a lot of people coming out and saying they want to serve underserved demographics. And what we've seen in the UK and Europe is that often means migrants. But I wonder what uh, ability people will have to do that in the US in their current political climate. Uh, I, I don't think it's a market without challenges, put it that way. But do we think generally we're going to see more niche challenger banks in the US? I think some of the challenger banks in the US are starting to get some pretty pretty hefty funding, mm-hmm. um, which sort of says, you know, obviously that the US market is not is not one market. It is much more like Europe. It's kind of saying, you know, different things exist in different places. And so we are seeing obviously UK challenger banks go across and we're seeing US challenger banks. Actually, there's a question, I think, the last sort of 12 months with if they're getting traction. And I think only only sort of um, information I can take that they are getting traction is based off of some of the new funding rounds and valuation. Mm-hmm. You'd assume they've got traction. Um, and Chime just, was it 4.5 billion, yeah, their yeah. latest valuation? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, you would assume so. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, if we look at sort of infrastructure, infrastructure, you know, we look at another recent fundraise, you look at the likes of Plaid and stuff like that. So infrastructure, access to data, you have a whole bunch of regional banks in the US and, and actually being able to sort of be experienced on top of those regional banks as well as a real opportunity in the US. Um, so so I, I think I would say maybe less challenges than we see in Europe, um, just because I think funding is really kind of accelerating in the in the challenger mm. space right now on, on the ones that are winning. And I think your point about regional banks is, is, is really interesting as well because the regional banks are the people who currently serve those niches when you're talking about people being outside of, you know, New York or San Francisco. They're the ones who currently give those pe- those particular communities the services that those particular communities really, really need. And actually their, their platforms that they use in theory are some of the most basic that you can get sort of out-the-box solutions um, from, from very, very big core banking providers, um, yet they're paying probably the highest fees of anybody. So if you look at... But the again the customer needs of those community banks 
pretty basic um, versus probably more than populous areas of the states. Um, but they're still being penalised. The customers are being penalised for high banking costs just because the platforms that sit underneath them are expensive for the community banks to take. They don't so just have they don't just have banks with branches there. They have drive through banking. Oh yeah, like no challenger yet has managed to replicate the experience of drive through banking. Sa- Sam was. Uh, I spoke to Sam. Sam's a Sam Wall. Well, Sam Wall speaks this, he's been on the podcast. Obviously, um, lives in the states. He was going through one the other day to bank a check. So and I cash tubes. <laughs> <laughs> you put cash in and it goes through a little tube. Oh, <laughs> like they used to have in Woolworths. Yeah, it's really cool. Wow, that's that's a cool bag. They figured it out. What, what year did they have that in your Woolworths? I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, tubes. I don't remember that. Yeah, it was yeah. really cool. You'd be so- oh, no, little, Tesco's as well, The Tesco's actually. still yeah. has them, actually. They yeah. still have the little things. You put the money and you screw it. And they used to like put it behind them. The, the people on the checkout put it behind them. But they would use uh, suction to bring the tubes up and over the top of the store and back into the back because they didn't want... So like Woolworths and Tesco are, are high, high crash... Tra- well, used to be a high volume of transactions were in cash. So they would yeah. send it out the back so it wasn't in the um, people at the checkouts' tills, making them less of a threat. But I was in Tesco the other day, and they still go around the self-checkout things and take the cash out and put it in those little um, screw-up plastic cups. What the tubes really? well, I didn't see the tubes there. Oh. <laughs> we anyway. need to think of more ways to introduce those sort of vacuum tubes into, into our day-to-day lives. <laughs> I think we need those back. <laughs> it's, just, it's pure pleasure. I could it? just yeah. see it as a way of being like, you know, me slacking somebody standing by the fridge, please send me a Coke, and it just comes <laughs> into my desk. Um, all right, I think that's a good point to wrap. Um, that wraps up our 2020 FinTech prediction. So uh, so thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Simon? Uh, we're Get Fronted on Twitter. Uh, Mel, how about you? At MelPalmer28 or at Nakoro.com. And Ed, how about you? This is Bud.com. Brilliant. Adam? Uh, Adam Adam D8 or 11FS.com. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky, or if you are interested in finding out more about insurance and insurtech, and in fact listening to Mel and I have a conversation about wealth tech and insurtech, please go and check out Insurtech Insider, our sister podcast. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, what do you think of today's predictions? Let us know on our social platforms. Just search Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter for more news and content. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.